0: Hello, and welcome to Liftoff from your friends
1: at Relay FM. It is brought to you this week by Squarespace and Circle. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Jason Snell, and I'm joined as always by my co host, Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hello. Hello, Jason. We are uh, back a little late. I was on vacation, so we uh, recorded this a uh, few days after we would normally on the uh, fortnightly schedule, but uh, it's all good. It's all good. I didn't go into space. I just, I went to about 30,000 feet and flew somewhere. Good. Do you have some good time off? Good time off. Yeah, absolutely. Didn't record any podcasts for more than a week, which is unusual for me. So That is unusual That's for you. Right. I'm back, but you, you're all still doing this, so I guess I'll... Right. Yeah, podcasting did not back disappear in your absence, so... That's... Going to be a relief to my mom. (laughs) Should we jump into the uh, pre-flight checklist? Let's do it. Before we light this candle? Okay. Uh, Really quick one I've got, which is on several podcasts, I have, including this one, I think, complained about the fact that HBO's wonderful miniseries, From the Earth to the Moon, is not really widely available. It's not on HBO's streaming platforms believe the dvd is out of print and there was just a dvd there were two dvd editions and then it went away and i bought both of them i have lamented in some places the fact that with the apollo 11 50th anniversary rapidly approaching this very month that um they didn't take the opportunity to re-release that mm-hmm. and get it all spiffy and uh, ready to go so people can watch it because it's a really excellent miniseries and here's the good news apparently they have been secretly in the background without announcing anything working on it and they announced like a week ago that a complete hd remaster will be available on july 15th both as a blu-ray that you can order on amazon or if you're an hbo go or hbo now uh, streaming person, if you're an HBO subscriber, basically, um, it'll all the episodes will be on their streaming platform. Awesome! And I be- believe they're also going to do a marathon on uh, the weekend of the Apollo 11 anniversary on their HBO Two channel, where they're going to show the whole miniseries. So, for those out there who have not gotten the chance, and I'm, I'm I kid you not, every time we start planning an episode. Uh, That is, looking back at a specific Apollo mission, I keep sending messages to Stephen about what happens in that episode of From the Earth to the Moon. It really is (laughs) uh, so good in covering uh, the whole Apollo program, not just Apollo 11, although there is a a really good, up until this last two years, it was, I would say, the best uh, dramatization of Apollo 11 it's probably been surpassed by uh, First Man at this point, but uh, it's still pretty good. And uh, and all the other missions are on there too. So finally, when we talk about From the Earth to the Moon, people can actually go out and watch the thing. So that's uh, I'm very excited because I was sad that it was like becoming this little secret that I had because I watched it a decade ago and or, or more than that and then bought the, the DVDs way back when.
0: Yeah, I'm super glad they've made it more available. It is an excellent series. I think the version I have... It may be from the back of a truck on the internet. Like, it was just hard to come by for a long time. So Yeah.
1: Yeah, they did They did the original version. So they did the original version in standard def 4x3 TV. It was that long mm-hmm. ago. And they did a widescreen version, which was really unfortunate because even though they shot it on 35mm film uh, in widescreen, the special effects were all... It's the Babylon 5 problem for nerds out there, which is the same thing, which is you've got these computer effects that were rendered in standard def at 4 by 3 And they're like, oh, but we want to do a widescreen edition. What do we do with the special effects? And the answer was blow them up and crop Mm. them. And so you get these standard def blown up crop. They look terrible. And I really regret actually buying the widescreen edition because it makes it worse, not better. Because even though you can see kind of the images are are formatted better for my TV, but the effects are all bad. So they've gone back and they've done an HD remaster from the film. They've uh, apparently redone the special effects in... 16 by 9 high definition, which is great. So I can't wait to see it. And uh, my Amazon order, I'm an HBO subscriber. My Amazon order for the Blu-rays is already in. I should get it on release. Damn, very excited.
0: Uh, Moving on from that, switching gears uh, a little bit. uh, We've spoken in the past about how the U.S. government actually has told NASA not to talk to China about space issues. So that leads to some weird things, right? We have the International Space Station. China's not a part of that. They have their own space station program. And there's there's really no uh, no relationship there, uh, but that doesn't mean there's actually no conversation between the two countries at all in this in this uh, topic area. So, U.S. and Chinese officials have announced they will meet in the U.S. later this fall for quote bilateral talks about civil space. It's actually started in 2017, but this is not NASA working with the Chinese space agency. This is. The U.S. government and the Chinese government talking about issues of private companies and launch vehicles and that sort of thing. So it's it's still there's still this gap, uh, but this is uh, maybe closing a little bit. So there's a, um, a Kevin O'Connell, who is the director of Office for Space Commerce, the U.S. Commerce Department, uh, says that U.S. companies were uh, are concerned about uh, pricing of Chinese competitors. So there are, I guess, private space companies coming up in China. China has its own launch vehicles and uh, concerns about intellectual property and intellectual property theft, which is a big issue in the technology sector, Jason, where you and I normally work. That's a huge issue when it comes to China. And these companies are afraid it's going to bleed into the space industry as well. Uh, So there's going to be some important business meetings, I guess, is the the news here between China and, and the
1: U.S. I mean, I guess the attitude shifts often day by day. But given the attitude, uh, the more adversarial relationship that the U.S. government currently has with China in terms of trade and things like that, I I would be surprised to see this. But, you know, then again, maybe this is uh, something that that ends up kind of falling out of the result of conversations about other things and how the relationship goes. But it is a a weird situation. Uh, So good good that they're talking. It's just uh, very strange that the U.S., Um, is barred from, you know, interoperating with the Chinese space agency, but not any other space agency, including Russia's, Um, I guess, because we need their, their rides right now. (laughs) I guess that hard to rattle the saber too hard when, uh, when they're your ride, (laughs) they're just gonna leave you behind if you, uh, if you make them angry. So uh, yeah, I think I personally, I think more us china conversation about space it's a good thing uh because right now we're in this awkward situation where our space partners can talk to them and we can't it's not great Mm-mm. so we'll see where this goes i mean it's, it's one of the most complicated relationships on
0: the planet between the u.s and china so
1: for sure all right, I've got one about uh, methane. We've talked about this before. There's this question about Mars methane. And I believe we talked in a previous episode about the idea that uh, Curiosity detected some methane. And then the uh, one of the orbiters looked down at the surface and did not see methane. And everybody was like, well, what's going on? Well, it has happened again. Uh, last week, I believe, Curiosity detected high levels of methane in Gale Crater. Um, And then Curiosity, a few days later, said, oh, now we're back to the normal contents of methane in the atmosphere in Mars, which is basically none, almost none. And uh, what does it mean? Nobody really knows what's going on. There are these, you know, the methane goes away. It is dissipated uh, very rapidly, but it's coming from somewhere, at least uh, occasionally. Um, And everybody gets very excited because... Uh, and we'll mention this on a, on a thing later, which is like everybody has been taught to frame science, uh, planetary science in terms of the quest for life, which is a PR choice that I would say was made back in the 90s mm-hmm. and it continues to hold. And I think it's, I, it's a personal peeve that uh, I think there's a lot of interesting planetary science that does not have to do with just looking for life everywhere, but... Uh, I think that somebody decided that this is how you get funding and this is how you get people's attention is talking about life. Anyway, methane can have a biological origin. It can also not. It can also not have a biological origin. So I kind of want to say probably not aliens here. (laughs) But we don't really understand why the methane is coming uh, out of Mars. And it could be. Uh, some it, It's some process that we don't really understand, which is very interesting. So the the mystery goes on, but uh, the thing that was spotted a while ago has been spotted again. And that's a, an important data point that this might not have been an error, uh, that this is something that's actually going on. And we just have to start scratching our head and figuring right. out what uh, what's going on. The
0: mystery is not just where it comes from, but then where it goes, because it is very transient, right? Curiosity sees yeah. it and or detects it, and then it doesn't detect it. A few days later so some there's some sort of cycle some sort of process here that is still unknown to us uh
1: one mo- more uh eclipse <laughs> let me put it that way that's strange uh i don't have any news here other than to say there was a total solar eclipse in argentina and chile and people saw it and it was really awesome and it made me think about when uh, we had our eclipse here mm-hmm. that we saw a couple years ago now and uh it's great.
0: And there's uh there's another there'll be another one here in the US in just a few years, which is exciting. Yeah, yeah.
1: It's the amazing the eclipse uh, they they keep happening. You can't stop them. It's inevitable. They just uh, hop around. It's like a little uh it's like a rock band on a world tour. Sure. They were in Argentina and Chile, but now they'll be somewhere else next year. <laughs> Uh, I don't know where I didn't look that up. Uh, I want to mention moon art for a moment. Uh, Those in the New York area might want to check out, again, Apollo 11, 50th anniversary themed here. The Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York has an exhibit called Apollo's Muse, The Moon in the Age of Photography. Uh, interesting title. It's actually broader than that. There are a couple of drawings by Galileo that were some of the most detailed. You know, Galileo was not the first person to look at the moon in a telescope closely, but he was the first to really understand what he was seeing in terms of perspective and that it was shadows on mountains and things like that. And uh, so they've got a couple of his drawings and then a whole bunch of other perspectives. Before there was photography on the moon, uh, you know, you had to have drawings somebody made a, a lunar atlas in 1647 that was apparently for you know the next 200 years was by far the most precise uh, measurement of what is on the lunar surface. Uh, some plaster casts from 1874 uh, by a guy who sort of fancifully made lunar surface surface projections, not really entirely based on. Uh, what he was seeing but sort of his artist's interpretation and then also getting into the age of photography as the exhibit's uh, name would imply uh, people trying to figure out how to take a a daguerreotype the the idea of uh, needing a long exposure because the moonlight is very faint in order in those early film you know early cameras to get um, enough of exposure to get a picture of the moon and you know the earth is rotating and you need to keep the moon in perfectly in frame and like the struggle to get the first good lunar photographs and then you know there's there's bits of uh there's a film montage of a bunch of famous films including the voyage to the moon by uh the melier brothers and uh it's uh very cool there's an article in the new york times that was an overview of it and if you're in that area i think if you're listening to this podcast and you're in the new york area you might want to check that exhibit out it sounds very cool
0: yeah uh, i was looking through this website this morning and there's some incredible pieces in it and i think it just goes to show how long humanity's been curious about what we see in the sky you know, and to, For to push sure, the technology right? in like 1840 to take a lunar photograph, uh, clearly you're doing that because you're driven to learn more about it, and that, that I don't think that's really changed about humanity in in the decades since.
1: No, and and you can think, imagine all the the uh, tens, hundreds, thousands of years of uh, of humanity that it was really only in Galileo's time where there were finally instruments to allow you know, you to see more than what you could see with the naked eye and really understand what was going on up there. And then, of course, all the fantasies that come out of that, uh, the science fiction and paintings of sort of dancers and nymphs and things on the lunar surface mm-hmm. that come off of it as well. So, yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, really cool. Uh, if you go
0: check that out, let us know how it goes. Yeah. All right. We have uh, some some non-moon art topics to discuss. But first, let me tell you no. about our first sponsor. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by Squarespace. You can make your next move with Squarespace, easily creating a website for your next idea with unique domain name, award-winning templates, and more. Maybe you want to create an online store or show off a portfolio of work, or maybe you want to start blogging. Well, Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that lets you do uh, all that stuff, all under one roof. And there's nothing to install. There's no patches to worry about. No like server software upgrades are needed. You just don't have to worry about that kind of stuff because Squarespace has got it covered. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you need any help. Their system allows you to quickly and easily grab a unique domain name. and All of those award-winning templates are beautifully designed for you to show off your great ideas. We talk a lot about the templates with Squarespace, but what's really neat about their system is you can go in and customize them to your heart's content. They have this really robust system go in and change fonts and colors, but you can even go in and, and do your own CSS work if you really want to do something custom. Uh, it's a really powerful system if you uh, start digging into it, but if you don't want to do that, you can go with a template out of the box because they do they really do look great. Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month, but you can start a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com liftoff. When you decide to sign up, use the code LIFTOFF to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain name and to show your support for the show. Once again, that's squarespace.com LIFTOFF and the code LIFTOFF to get 10% off your first purchase. I'd like to thank Squarespace for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. All right, Jason, it's time. Are you ready? I'm never ready, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> last time you you sung a song, uh-huh. uh, which was nice because I was I was sick last time, uh, but I I can get through it this time. We it is time for our SLS segment, Space Launch System segment, explaining geopolitics, mechanical systems, engineering achievements, news and trivia.
1: SLS segment. We've got a
0: two parter this week. Uh, we're going to start with the Orion ascent abort test. This took place earlier. This week uh, uh, at the Cape, NASA held a launch abort test. So like Apollo, the Orion capsule uses a, a abort tower above the capsule to pull it away in case something uh, goes sideways with the SLS below it. So this is a tower on top of the capsule. It has its own rocket motors, and it can basically uh, – it's like popping the cork on a champagne bottle, and you just pull that capsule away from whatever ter- terrible thing is happening below.
1: Yeah, it's it's just like popping uh-huh. a bottle of champagne except with much less celebrations yes. because something terrible has happened
0: to me <laughs> and uh, 400 pounds of thrust. It's you know you're probably not using that to uh to pop open a drink, but uh, you know it's it's just what came to mind, Jason.
1: This is what came to mind. And people will know that th- these are really important. Obviously, the SpaceX uh, incident mm-hmm. was they don't they don't have a tower they, they have it integrated into their capsule, and uh, they had the incident where they lost a capsule because there was a rapid, unexpected disassembly. Uh, because uh, you got to get these safety systems right. You can't just build a capsule and stick it on a rocket and slap into space. You really need to deal with these moments of uh, abortability, where if there is a bad problem with a rocket, fairly low. Uh, in the atmosphere, you can get the crew to safety. Mm-hmm. And, and so these tests are super important.
0: Absolutely. I mean, just look at the uh, Soyuz launch a couple months ago. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, proof that these things matter. Uh, so this uh, this test, it went well. They used a boilerplate capsule. We've talked about this in the early Apollo missions. This is not a finished capsule. It's not designed for crew. It is basically the structure and the the weight of a sort of regular capsule, but kind of a dummy object and uh it was launched atop a refurbished first stage peacekeeper intercontinental ballistic missile. I don't know if you remember <laughs> the peacekeeper, I did some reading on this. Uh it's an ICBM that they haven't made since 2005. I guess there was one laying around and they refurbished it and fitted it to uh the to the Orion capsule. It's so it was if you look at these photos, there's some really good photos in the show notes. It's a weird looking stack. It's just like this little stubby rocket and uh I guess you don't have to move very much weight, so it can do that. But a very unusual looking vehicle. Yes. Uh, so the the launch went well. They they got to about thirty one thousand feet. The abort tower fired again, four hundred pounds of thrust. So really, just getting that cork right out of the out of the bottle and uh, pulled Orion away from the launch vehicle as expected. But this this isn't a parachute test. So this capsule hit the surface of the Atlantic Ocean at like three hundred miles an hour and yeah. sank. Uh, but they were testing that. They've done parachute tests are separate. This is just testing the abort tower, a huge step towards launching this thing. Uh, and it's actually the second abort test for the Orion capsule. I, I seem to remember when I was reading about this, like I feel like they've done this before. They did in May of 2010 under the NASA Constellation Program, which Orion mm. is a refugee from. So, And that was a pad abort test, which SpaceX did several years ago as well, uh, successfully, where basically you have the capsule just on the pad itself, you know, on a launch stand, you're not firing it into the atmosphere and doing it in flight, you're just doing it from a standstill, which is also important. And that didn't happen in any of the previous American space flights. But it was always a possibility that while you're atop the rocket, something happens on the launch pad, and you can pull away even, even from the ground. So uh, this is now the second test, and from this perspective, Orion is ready to go.
1: It's great. Yeah, that's a weird-looking thing. It's like a tin can with a, like a, I don't even know, with another rocket on top of it. <laughs> it's super strange.
0: It's a little, it's unusual, but, uh, you know, we've got the job done, so no complaints from us about that.
1: All right, so so that's Orion. <laughs> what about the, uh, the launch platform? There's some news there, too. Yeah,
0: this SLS segment is kind of everything... Except the SLS itself, everything above it and below it, I guess. guess. That's how it's working this week. Uh, Yes, so the mobile launch platform, if you remember from uh, previous space programs, this is what takes the rocket or the launch vehicle, you know, it's got the tower along the side of it, it has all the fuel lines and, you know, uh, crew bridges and everything you need. Uh, and it sits atop the crawler transporter. So the crawler transporter takes it out of the pad, leaves it at the pad, the crawler transporter uh, hangs out, and then after launch, picks the mobile launch platform back and brings it back to the vehicle assembly building. Uh, so the SLS mobile launch platform has been moved to pad 39B for final testing and fitting. So if you think about this, the, the mobile launch platform is really the interface between the rocket and the rest of the world. So... Any water or propellant or air that has to go into the rocket goes through the MLP. Uh, the swing arms all have to be tested, that you know, drop away. Remember that from like that really sort of iconic Saturn V footage of those big swing arms moving out of the way. All that stuff's got to be tested. Yeah. And that's what's going on at
1: 39B uh, now. And that, that'll be... Yeah, the... The crew access arm that goes out so that the crew can have access to the capsule is actually too big to test inside the vehicle assembly building, right? As huge as that building is, mm-hmm. it's not big enough for that. So they have to roll it outside so they can do those tests. Right. And at the end of this, the ground support system
0: team should be ready for SLS. So when, whenever that happens, that's not the topic today. Mm. Uh, again, another sort of critical testing, just like the the ascent abort mission, uh, a big step forward uh, I, I wanted to use this opportunity to talk a little bit about the mobile launch platform. We've talked about this a long time ago, but the one that is at 39B right now, uh, again, was actually part of the Constellation program. It was originally built for the Ares One rocket, uh, but then overhauled for SLS. So it was already built. They retrofitted it for the new rocket uh, at a cost of a billion dollars. The, the tower is 380 feet tall, 115 meters it's a, it's a big, big piece of machinery. Like you said, it's been in the vehicle assembly building. But all these tests, like all the stuff's at the pad. You have, obviously, you're in open space. So you can move those arms around. Uh, so it's been in the in the vehicle assembly building for the last nine months, undergoing testing there. Now it's at the pad for its testing. And uh, they use that, the our old friend, the uh, crawler transporter. So it drove the 4.2-mile journey over two days. Have you ever seen footage of that thing? It moves very slowly. Mm-hmm. But it gets the job done, and then it, it uh, uses laser alignment systems and all sorts of things to get the uh, MLP in the correct position at the pad. Uh, so that's kind of uh, kind of where it is. Mem- remember also that this mobile launch platform is going to have uh, a sibling. So NASA had announced that it was going to build a second mobile launcher to accommodate the upgraded, taller version of the SLS. Remember, the SLS at the beginning, from the beginning, has been a rocket that will grow and expand the capability over time. The current upper stage is sort an interim upper stage. It just has one engine. The plan for the Block 1B rocket will be a four-engine upper stage. That upper stage is, we've talked about it before as well, is kind of just off to the side for now. It is not uh, in the immediate future. But it could be ready as early as 2023, and NASA believes it will be cheaper and faster to build a complete second mobile launcher than to retrofit this one yet again, you know, from the Ares-1 to the SLS to the SLS Block 1B. uh, They say building a new one will be cheaper and faster. So that will begin, that work will begin very soon. The contract's been awarded. Uh, It's going to start being built outside of the vehicle assembly building and then move indoors at a certain point in the future, so and we think about these things, and we look at these these images and the, this video of these launches, and the mobile launch platform is in all of those, and it's a, it's a critical piece of hardware and engineering to get right. And uh, you know, so MLP one is
1: uh, one one step further down that road. Right. We actually had a listener question on an email, maybe mm-hmm. I don't know if it was on Twitter, uh, but it was a, a listener question about the mobile launch platform which had been uh, first time in a while that we've gotten uh, a question about that and it was great because it was a, a question i did not have any idea i'd never really thought about it before which is once they crawl the crawler takes the whole thing out to the launch pad does it stay there or not does it is it all attached so it just has to sort of like sit there and grin and bear it underneath the launch and then and then leave, and the answer is no it doesn't it actually there's a there's like a platform in like the VAB and it slides under there and then and then basically is it takes takes the weight and then it rolls the whole thing out and likewise at the top of the hill and along the, the launch pad there is a a platform that it goes on and then the uh, crawler transporters. Uh, are the article I read said they go uh, a long way away? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they're driven away because they they are only two of them, and the last thing they want is for there to be an explosion that might destroy them. So they uh, they take their loads out there and then they drop it off and then they leave and go far mm-hmm. away. So they, yeah, they go
0: hide out and then pick up the launch platform and take it back when they're done. So that was a great question, and uh, yeah, it goes in, and hides out <laughs> during the launch. It's not sitting there the whole time. So, yeah,
1: there's that. that's the SLS uh, segment. It's all the parts around the SLS. Like, the yes. SLS itself is revealed as the um, negative space between <laughs> the Orion Ascenteboard test and the mobile launcher. Yeah, that's kind of how it worked this week, for whatever reason. Yeah,
0: it happens. Yeah. Uh, we've got uh, a couple more things to talk about, but let me tell you about our second sponsor. And uh, that is Circle. Every now and again, a product or service comes along... And when you hear about it, you realize it's something that you really should probably look into, something that you probably wonder how you ever live without it. And Circle has kind of become one of those products in my household. We've got kids. They have devices that are on the internet. And uh, you know we're already getting questions. They're young, but we get questions like, hey, can I have a few more minutes? Uh, can I do something that you said I couldn't do previously? It's easy to see why kids have a million distractions online, uh, Fortnite and YouTube uh, being a uh, the top contenders in my household. Uh, but Circle is the easiest way to manage your family's online time across all of their devices and critically both inside and outside the house. A lot of these types of services only work if you're on the home network and that, that's not uh, a, a solution that works everywhere, obviously. And that's where Circle comes in. The Circle Home Plus, uh, it works with the Circle app. So parents can filter what content is allowed set limits for screen time, monitor history, and usage. And each family member has a profile that's fully customizable to their needs, age, and maturity. So you can set different uh, boundaries up for different family members, which is absolutely great. Uh, They sent me one a few weeks ago. It was really easy to set up. I plugged it into my network. I downloaded the app on my iPhone. And very quickly, I was tapping through it, selecting devices, assigning them to the family members that, that operate them, and putting those boundaries in place. And it really makes me feel good that my kids are, aren't doing anything unexpected on the internet. Right now, our listeners can get a super limited time offer for $30 off a Circle Home Plus when you visit meetcircle.com liftoff and enter liftoff at checkout. That's $30 off if you visit meetcircle.com liftoff and enter the code liftoff at checkout. Truth is, you're always going to worry about your kids, but with Circle, you can make sure they have a more healthy relationship with technology, so you have one less thing to worry about. One last time, that's meetcircle.com slash liftoff, and use the code liftoff to save 30 bucks. Our thanks to Circle for their support of Liftoff and all of Relay
1: FM. All right, Jason, you want to tell us about Insight? I don't, because it's mm, sad, sort of. So... <laughs> Mars Insight is digging into Mars. It's got a a seismograph. It's got lots of other great stuff. It's doing geology. It's learning a lot about Mars. But one of the great features of Mars Insight was the heat probe, uh, which they called the mole. And the mole is supposed to go 10 feet down, deeper than we've ever dug into the surface of Mars so that we can find out what's going on down there and what's the temperature down there and just like again give us a little better sense of what the surface of mars is like however back in february as it was uh, doing this it ended up only getting a foot down 12 inches so a lot uh, you know 10 of of the goal Mm -hmm. of this thing and and if you've ever dug a hole in your backyard, you know that you can hit rocks and there's all sorts of stuff. If they hit some like tree roots or something, it would be that would be quite a story on Mars. <laughs> but there are lots of rocks there, lots of rocks, um, and it, the mole's designed to push them out of the way uh, because there's nobody there, you know, to help the mole. The mole needs to do this job itself, but. It's unclear what stopped it, if it hit a larger rock, if it hit a, a layer of gravel, if it's become damaged in some way. Uh, we don't really know what's going on. Anyway, on June 28th, InSight's robotic arm removed the mole's surrounding support structure. So now the InSight team can get a better look at the top of the tool. However, it is a self-hammering tool. It can't be removed from its location by the robotic arm. So it's, if, if the rock can't be moved, it's stuck which is uh, uh, that's a tough one to, to bring your uh, post hole digger all the way to Mars <laughs> and only get one foot down.
0: Mm-hmm. I was reading something about this. They're, they've used the seismograph tools on InSight to uh, basically hammer where they are, keep trying to drill down, and trying to listen and understand, you know, maybe what they're up against. I don't know how successful that's been. It, it seems like it's still unknown why it stopped. Like I said, taking the cover off, uh, they it may give them an opportunity to look at the top of it and see if there's any sort of mechanical damage, but it, it doesn't seem good. Uh, it seems like maybe this tool is uh, is not going to function the way they wanted to. But the mission will continue. This is just one tool yeah. among many. Insight was a pretty loaded lander. Uh, they can actually still detect temperature changes on the surface uh, with the tool on, on Insight's deck, and uh, and in fact, Insight has already detected its first Mars quake. So it is still uh operational just without this component uh the the mission parameters will be a little bit narrower than they were before
1: yeah yeah it's okay this, this stuff happens mm-hmm. um mars is still tricky it is and planetary exploration is still tricky um all right next topic Stephen. i know you're excited about it i'm excited about it yes we are apparently entering the era of space drones. We are Mars 2020 has a little quadcopter on it mm-hmm. with the idea being that uh, that one of the next phases in our exploration of Mars where we've had these rovers would be to use Mars's atmosphere and we've gotten so good with building autonomous Uh, aerial vehicles uh, that are all around us following behind skateboarders and whatever else they do. They do lots of stuff, right? That technology has advanced so much that they're going to send this experimental uh, quadcopter in the Mars 2020 Mm -hmm. mission just to give it a try. But... Um, that's only, as it turns out, the the starting point for our, our adventures with flying vehicles in outer space.
0: Yeah. So NASA has announced a new uh, mission in the New Frontiers program. So that's the program. Uh, it's sort of medium sized missions, medium sized yeah. spacecraft. They're capped at a billion dollars. Uh, the previous graduates of this program include uh, New Horizons of Pluto flyby fame. Juno, which is currently at Jupiter, and Osiris Rex, which is exploring uh, the Bennu asteroid, and of course we'll do a sample return. Very successful portfolio there, and Dragonfly is is uh,
1: next in that line. So yes, it's, it won the competition, mm-hmm. which has been—it's almost like a reality show. They've been filtering it down, um, and you know, not to. Okay, let me give away my my bias okay. here. The, the The two finalists were Dragonfly and a mission to a comet that's already been explored right. to bring back a sample that I believe has already is already going to get a sample return mission. And I thought to myself, really? Another comet? Oh, the same comet? Really? And I thought, there's no way they're going to pick that one. And they did not. <laughs> so I, I danced a little dance because I am excited to send uh, stuff to
0: Titan. Yeah, this is going to be really neat. So Dragonfly... Uh will launch in 2026. The launch vehicle is unspecified at this point. Uh, and it will reach Titan in 2034. Got a few miles to go. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And
0: what's what's yep. neat about this is the team and NASA are actually going to use data from Cassini to pick uh, a land, possible landing sites to uh that there's some information about Titan's weather. You know, Titan's atmosphere is a remarkable place, which actually allows this, this sort of vehicle to even uh, operate. And so they have information from Cassini about uh, weather on Titan and areas that may be more or less prone to damaging winds. Uh, so they're using all this information from
1: Cassini to inform this, which is uh, pretty awesome. The trick here, which they talked about, is that I think Titan has one-tenth the gravity of Earth. But a much, much thicker atmosphere. It's about, or it's what one-seventh the gravity, uh, four times thicker mm-hmm. atmosphere. Which, what this means is, flying something there should be, like, really doable. Right. Because there's not a lot of mass, or not a lot of weight. Your mass doesn't matter because the gravity is low. And a uh, super thick atmosphere to grab a hold of for a flying machine
0: yes and uh, what a flying machine is going to be so it's going to be pretty pretty big you know the, not quite as big as curiosity or mars 2020 but uh almost that size it's going to have eight rotors yeah and for like a drone so it's not a helicopter this is like you know one of those big sort of commercial drones that they use on yeah. tv shows and commercials yeah. and stuff it's not
1: not even a quadcopter it's yeah. an octocopter mm-hmm. Right, but yeah, it's not it's not a helicopter. It's it's uh, or a glider. It is a an eight rotor uh, thing, and it's not small. Right, I think that's an important point, as you said. It's actually, you know, this is this is like Mars rover ish size vehicle. It's big, uh, except it it won't roll. It will. fly. It will fly.
0: So they're going to to bring it in uh, around the equator of the moon, which is covered by these large sand dunes, and they will have up to, uh, I, think this, I think they said, two dozen flights planned over about two and a half years. And they're going to make these hops through these different areas to uh, study Titan. You know, Titan has liquid methane uh, in rivers and lakes. It has organic materials in the form of snow coming down from the atmosphere. And they are going to try to sample as many diverse locations as possible, To back up to Mars for a second, you touched on this talking about the Mars 2020 program. Rovers, as incredible as they are and as uh, capable as they have become, they still have relatively limited range. You know, where you put them down is pretty much where they're going to be. Dragonfly is going to cover about 112 miles or 180 kilometers. It's still not uh, a massive distance, but you can see how this technology opens the door to more flexible missions. If you have something, you know, if you co- if you're driving, if you're roving, and you come cr- come across a gully or a, or something you weren't expecting, well, you got to turn around. Like you can't necessarily cross those things. Well, if you got eight rotors, you you are infinitely more flexible and uh, and more capable to go to these different areas. And this is going to be a wide ranging mission, and they're going to be taking advantage. The reason we're doing this is because Titan has this combination of Of liquid methane it has this thick atmosphere and there may be uh the the elements of of of, you know the recipe for life there and that's what uh that's what dragonfly is going to be looking for to your point earlier how that's always sort of Mm -hmm. the filter of these things that's true here as well Mm -hmm. and uh, dragonfly is going to be making samples
1: yeah it's 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 i understand it's funny my understanding is that uh Nobody has really made a very good case for life emerging at these temperatures, at these low energy levels. But what is interesting about Titan is that it is the only other body in the solar system that has, a, a, you know, a cycle, an ecological cycle like Earth, in that there is a, a chemical, a molecule that is a liquid and solid and gas and basically rains down and forms lakes and evaporates and has clouds and all of that. And the difference is because of the temperatures involved on Titan, the rocks are water and methane, which is a gas is is liquid and also methane in, uh, in the clouds. So it is our cycle, except much colder and with, Therefore, different elements. Mm-hmm. Um, whether so, so on that level, it's actually very interesting in talking about sort of the only other surface uh, that we know of that is this. Earth-like, but this is a methane cycle, and I think there's a real scientific question about whether you could actually have life at these sort of temperatures, but we don't know. and it, it's worth looking again, my feeling is it's worth looking regardless <laughs> of whether there's any possibility that there's life there or not. If what we really want to do is look for life, the the icy moons with the big uh, oceans are probably a better a better bet but titan is so interesting because it is so earth-like in all of these ways except the temperature itself so we're we are pro dragonfly is what you're saying yeah i'm i'm so excited i mean the idea that it has to fly itself is terrifying because we know from the mars rovers that they like roll ahead a very small amount and then they send pictures back and then there's a debate and a whole conversation that happens and people put on 3d uh imagers and they look around and they like set the path and then they send that back and then it rolls another three feet. That's sort of how the Mars rovers work. They are not independently moving. They're being very slowly rolled across the surface, carefully driven by their drivers and, and uh, to the places that the scientists want them to go. And this thing, you know, this thing has to fly itself because it's all the way out of Titan. It's very far away. We can't remote control this thing. So, the I, I imagine it will be using a lot of sort of machine learning it 's going to get trained on a bunch of different terrains it 's going to have a bunch of you know radar systems and hazard avoidance. but it is uh, an interesting engineering challenge to get this thing to fly itself and be safe and also i 'll point out that we mentioned the extremely cold conditions here the The Huygens uh, lander that is our only uh, time on the surface of Titan it lasted a very short amount of time. It is very cold down there. So, uh that's another thing is it, this thing has to be robust with its eight uh blades of its uh of its octocopter design, you know, it has to be robust enough to survive and keep moving around on Titan. So, it's a huge engineering challenge, but a thing pull it off it will be um an amazing thing to see oh it's uh you know only 15 years between now and
0: landing yeah tune in in
1: 2034 (laughs) for more Mm. how old will i be in 2034 i don't even want to think about it (laughs) 48 okay yeah that's really old steven Mm. Mm -hmm. you'll be as old as i am now (laughs) (gasps) oh no i will be retired (laughs) ha ha no i won't uh Hopefully, I will be around and uh, probably still working And who knows, whatever is podcast in 2034. Liftoff, episode 1000.
0: <laughs> All right. I wanted to end this week talking about uh, Apollo Mission Control. So, at Johnson Space Center in Houston, for a long time, they had a, an Apollo Missions Operations Control Room, actually number two, uh, opened to the public, so you could go and see the consoles and the screens and everything. You know, we've all seen that from from movies like Apollo thirteen, the big banks of CRTs and greenhousing. Uh, over the years, that really was sort of wearing out, and uh, and it underwent an extensive renovation. Uh, it was uh, five million dollars in funding just from the Space Center in Houston. Uh, but money was also raised from Kickstarter, which actually I gave to just, I don't know if I need to disclose that, but I did. Yeah, me too. Um, And uh, it was, has been restored by a group out of Kansas. And there's a bunch of photos over on Ars Technica. They got to go in and look at it uh, before it opens back to the public. And my word, it is like a time capsule now. I mean, all the details they put back into this, um, they used, uh, lots of historical photos. All the buttons and switches and screens and everything are configured for Apollo 15. Uh, that documentation apparently was very complete. And so everything you see te- from a technology standpoint is uh, a snapshot in time for, for Apollo 15. This, this is not just random readouts on the screens and random buttons lit up. And uh, it is all there uh, with a purpose. And I really really want to go see this.
1: Yeah, me too. Me too. It's a. I think it's a must see. It's pretty great when they did the uh, official reopening. Uh, they had Gene Kranz there to cut the ribbon, which is pretty great. Um, and and uh, in the New York Times article I read about this, he basically said um, that he couldn't believe it. All of a sudden, you're 50 years younger and you want to work in there. I want I wanted back in that room to work hmm. he said which is pretty great. Anyway they they are doing guided tours for the public. It's open. So uh if you're in Houston uh you should check it out and yeah, Stephen, you you and I need to plan a uh, a field trip soon to go see Mission Control. I'm I'm for that. I think that'd be fun. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And man, I I great. was so excited that Gene Kranz got to be there. Uh that's really special.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm happy to have uh done my small part by funding that Kickstarter Mm -hmm. a little bit just to, like, pitch in a little money for them to... The updates for the Kickstarter have been great because they had to ship out those consoles to be completely refurbished, and they have uh, very carefully kind of matched the paint and everything, and it's pretty amazing. All right. I think that does it. I think so. I think so for this fortnight, but we'll be back in less than a fortnight since we're a little bit late. Uh, And uh, anything happen in space history that we should know about in... in, uh, (laughs) July. Yeah, trying to think mm, what it maybe could be. Fifty years ago.
0: Yes. Yeah, so we, uh, our next episode will be discussing Apollo Eleven. That will be out uh, on the sixteenth. Actually, the the day of the launch of Apollo Eleven. So we're we're right. We're going to hit that squarely, which is nice. Uh, we've you and I have talked a lot about how to handle this, and I think we have some uh, some unique ideas on how to cover it. Uh, I know a lot of people have been sending us links to the Thirteen Minutes to the Moon podcast. Which is really, really good. It's done by the BBC. If you're not yeah. listening to that, you need to go. Uh, you need to go do that. So there'll be a link to that in the show notes. Of course, you can find it in, in any podcast client you're using. Uh, it is a show that when it comes out, I uh, stop what I'm listening to and move to that because they're they're just killing it over there.
1: Yeah, yeah. Great job by uh, what is it, Kevin Fong, mm-hmm. who's the uh, who worked at at uh, the at NASA or worked at the Johnson Space yep. Center. Uh, and he is the presenter of that. And it's just, it's so good. It's, it's, and they, they interviewed so many um, people who were involved and then they've dug into the oral history archives, which is a great way to get the voices of people who are no longer with us, but were involved with, uh, with Apollo. Uh, really good stuff the best you know if you were listening to this podcast and you have not listened to it yet just go now and listen to 13 minutes the minute. uh,
0: but we're ready to jump to jump in there so uh, look for that in our next episode yeah, we
1: are not uh interviewing any apollo astronauts for our next episode but we will spend an episode uh digging into apollo 11 as only we can do because we have the exclusive rights to us <laughs> If you want to learn more about the stuff we spoke about
0: this week, like, like go check out all those photos uh, for, of the uh, abort launch. All that is over on the website, relay.fm slash liftoff slash uh, 102. While you're there, you can get in touch. There's an email link in the sidebar and you can uh, send us feedback via email. Or you can do it on Twitter, of course. You can find Jason on Twitter as jsnell, and you can find me there as ismh. And until our next Fortnite, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Adios.